Well, if you turn with me, please, back to Leviticus 25, which is in page 128 of the Blue Church Bibles. Well, next year, uh, 2017, uh, my father, uh, if he is spared, uh, will celebrate his jubilee. That is, it'll be 50 years since he was ordained a minister of the gospel. Now, jubilee is a, a Hebrew word that's uh, passed into English, and there are a few others like uh, Messiah and uh, Amen and Sabbath and indeed Satan. But most of these are in a religious uh, context. But Jubilee, as I'm sure you know, is a bit different. Uh, it comes, so I've read, from the Hebrew word for uh, a ram's horn. Uh, you'll see that in verse 9 in, uh, in Leviticus 25. You shall sound the loud trumpet on the day of atonement throughout the land. And we've come to use jubilee as a, as a term for celebration. Uh, and usually, something to do with 50 years, although we've expanded it a bit. Here we talked of the Queen's uh, uh, diamond uh, jubilee uh, for 60 years that she'd been reigning in, in the UK. And from jubilee, we get uh, the English word uh, jubilation. Uh, you know, great, great delight. And uh, at the Olympics, you see... Uh, if you've been watching them at all, the, the athletes, some of them anyway, uh, incoherent uh, with, with happiness and their, their families uh, are ecstatic and broadcasters looking for ever more uh, extravagant uh, superlatives at yet another outstanding performance. And that's a, a kind of jubilation, so over-the-top, uh, excited uh, joy. Try and bear that, that thought of joy as we look at uh, this theme uh, of uh, jubilee, because it's part of the, the wider theme that we've been developing in the congregation over the last uh, 18 months, I suppose, is really of uh, embers to a flame. That is local congregations growing into a, a healthy, healthy state. And today, uh, well, the last few weeks indeed, we've been looking at the theme, the concept of mercy ministry. And as Dr. Keller says in one of the books Ivor's been, been plugging fairly relentlessly, really, is that Felt needs are a key to core needs. Felt needs are a key to core needs. Because people don't always realize that their real basic fundamental problem is sin. Their alienation from God and the reality and impact of sin in their environment and their lives. And as the church tries to help people where they feel that they are hurting, it can also help them to see that Jesus can meet their core, their real underlying needs. Felt needs as a key to core needs. That might be a strategic approach, but there's also plenty of evidence in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the poor, the disadvantaged, the downtrodden, the vulnerable should be cared for, provided for and loved, because that is what God desires. Well, uh, Leviticus 25, uh, I were suggested to me, and therefore I'm suggesting to you, that the teaching on Jubilee points us to mercy ministry in the church. And of course, it's in Leviticus. And for most people, Leviticus is quite tough. Maybe you'll tell me afterwards, as far as you're concerned, it's a breeze. Uh, but a lot of people find Leviticus quite difficult. 
because a lot of it does seem a bit irrelevant. There are some bits you'll recognise in Leviticus 19 and verse 18. It says, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's what, um, that's the summary of the law that was given to Jesus. And the man then asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? Well, if he'd read Leviticus chapter 25 a bit more carefully, he might have answered his own question. But then again, we wouldn't have had that great parable. Because Leviticus is about law. Now, my own work is in law, and you may think that the Old Testament law was challenging. Well, there's 30,000 pages of British tax law, and I can tell you it's a great deal more difficult and challenging to make any sense of whatsoever than Leviticus 25. But nonetheless, a lot of us find law you know, difficult to make much sense of, particularly when we're talking about animal sacrifices and other offerings. We're talking about annual feasts, rules about sexual offences. Even in Leviticus chapter 19, there's a rule about tattoos. And this can be a bit puzzling for us because one of our great themes as uh, Reformed Evangelical Christians is that the Bible, all of it, is the Word of God. All of it is the Word of God. Andrew Boner said that, as far as Leviticus was concerned, no book in the Bible had a higher percentage of the direct words of God to his people. Yet how often have you been urged as Christians to observe rules about animal sacrifices? grain and burnt offerings, clean or unclean animals, or indeed about tattoos. Well, since Peter saw the vision of the unclean and the clean animals in Acts chapter 10, and in Hebrews chapter 10, we're told the law was but a shadow of things to come, a shadow of things to come. We know that since Jesus came, some law is redundant. So it is the word of God, but some law has become redundant. And our Westminster Confession says that actually the Old Testament law is of three types. Three types. First type, the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's binding on all people at all times forever. And then there was sacrificial law, animal sacrifices, grain, grain offerings and so on. That stressed the seriousness of sin. The fact that a sacrifice for sin is required. It points towards Jesus and no longer necessary because Jesus is the perfect, complete, final sacrifice. Sacrificial law had done its job. It doesn't apply at all anymore. But it tells us about Jesus. So the confession says that there are three types of of law in the Old Testament, moral law, sacrificial law, and now, where Leviticus 25 comes in, what they call civil law. And that was given to govern the ancient state of Israel. A society under God with particular rules as to how God's people should live and how they should um, reveal in a daily way God's particular care for them. And the confession says this law expired together with the state of that people. This law expired. So, staying with tattoos, it would no longer be right to say tattoos are forbidden by God. Not that I'm recommending them either, but um, <laughs> it's a neutral point. 
But like the sacrificial law, the civil law can reveal important principles about God and how he wants his people to live. And Leviticus chapter 25, and particularly the Jubilee bit, which, which I'll focus on, is of this type of civil law. So, we're going to look at this concept of Jubilee. Uh, it's uh, how it functioned or was supposed to function in the past. It's relevance now for us in the Christian church, and briefly at the end, the future. So, past, present, and future. Well, looking at Jubilee 25, in Leviticus 25, how it was meant to function. Every family that came with Joshua into the promised land was given its own patch. But with the passing of the years, some families would do well, others less well. Perhaps a father would behave foolishly and drink or gamble away the family inheritance. Perhaps illness or accident would mean the land couldn't be worked and they'd have to, be sell, they'd have to sell it. In extreme circumstances, as we see there, some people would, would sell their own labour and effectively become slaves. In a fallen world, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. Things do go wrong, and I'm sure every, every person here knows that things do go wrong. Because of Adam's sin, people and their environment are corrupted and damaged, and sin pervades everything. So this law recognised that how it was set up when Joshua came into the promised land, it wouldn't persist. Things would go wrong. People would lose their land. People would lose their freedom. So every 50 years, there was to be a special celebratory year. In the year of Jubilee, it was all rewound. The land was returned to the original families. Now, if you wanted to sell your land, you could if you wanted to, and the price would vary depending how long it was until the next Jubilee year. So, if you were selling in year 20, you make quite a high price. If you're selling in year 45, a much lower price. Because really what's happening is, as it says there, you're just selling the crops. In year 50, the family got it back. Well, that's what was supposed to happen. And also, it says there, the land was to get a break. The land was to get a rest. Instead, God would, there was no sowing or reaping, and instead God would provide a bumper crop. Doubtless a fallow year would be good for the land, but you can imagine that uh, that would be a bit of a strain on people's faith if you're saying, help Jubilee year next year, no sowing or reaping. That would be a bit of a challenge, I think, to many people. And Jubilee was also a year of liberty, of freedom. Not only was the land to be restored, but people were to be as well. Uh, you know, slavery was part of the ancient world, and doubtless it could be an a interesting and challenging discussion of what that means for us today. It wasn't, though, like American slavery, with which perhaps we're, we're more familiar, which was race-based, based on, on, on kidnapping, and involved maltreatment, and was permanent. Yet, this passage does show that slavery is not part of God's ideal for human flourishing. Verse 54, he and his children shall be released in the year of Jubilee. And verse 10, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. 
So Jubilee's got restoration of property, rest for the land, it's got freedom, and also it tells us about kindness to the impoverished. Rules and mercy, there in verses 35 to verse 46. It seems this was required not just in the 50th Jubilee year, but in other years as well. If your brother becomes poor and can't maintain himself, you shall support him as though, as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. And the reason is in verse 38. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So in ancient Israel, there was to be this support network. Economic activity continued normally, buying and selling of land and of crops and indeed of people. But people would get poor, and if so, you shall support them. And that applied, it says there, to your brother, which would be fellow citizens of Israel, not just your relatives, but also it applied to strangers and sojourners as well. If people lost their ancestral land, they'd eventually get it back. If people lost their, their liberty and became servants or slaves, that too was eventually restored. Well, it sounds quite an ideal situation for a primitive agrarian society. And I suppose a question, key question is, did it actually work? Well, what I've read anyway, it suggests there was very little evidence that Israel put it into practice, actually did this at all. For example, in Amos, there's quite a lot of denunciation of the misbehavior of the rich in that land, which is inconsistent with a jubilee principle. Hear this, you cows of Bashan who oppress the poor who crush the needy, or they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Well, Jubilee in Leviticus chapter 25 was meant to be, supposed to be, as an ideal of time, a time of restoration and of rest and of redemption, of buying back. And because God was the Lord who had brought the people out of Egypt into the land of Canaan, the people had a responsibility to help the poor. That was the reason. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. But as you can imagine, Jubilee put a strain on the people's faith, and it seems from what actually happened, it certainly did. Would God really provide for them in the way he had promised? Well, it seems it hasn't so much else. Ancient Israel didn't trust that God would treat them as he had promised, which meant the ideal was not obeyed. Nonetheless, it's there in the word of God. So then briefly, we looked at, fairly briefly, um, Jubilee in the Old Testament world. How about Jubilee now? Remember I said, Old Testament law, three types, moral law, the Ten Commandments, binding forever, sacrificial law, pointed to Christ, but, but, but no longer um, if, um, to be applied, and civil law, like Jubilee, establishing principles, but the details were for the ancient state of Israel. A parallel example is the Old Testament laws on, on tithing. A tithe was 10% of income or produce, and the tithes were mainly given away for the benefit of the worship of God, for the support of the Levites. In the example, Deuteronomy 14, it says, You shall eat the tithe of your produce, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So the tithe was sometimes consumed by the giver. 
primarily a way of showing that everything was from God. Therefore, we don't have a rule that says give 10% of your income to Christian causes. Of course you can, and all your contributions are very welcome here, as I'm sure uh, Morag would say as well. But there is no rule on the topic. Instead, the New Testament stresses giving willingly, cheerfully, sacrificially. But the principle of recognising all is from God remains. And it's similar for Jubilee. And I think the most important principle we can establish from this is that all we have is from God. Everything is from God. The ancestral plots in ancient Israel were from God. The land was and is God. It says in Psalm 50, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. And once we accept that principle and drive it into our hearts, then I think we live differently. That all, everything, is from grace. We know how God in Christ saved us from sin. All of grace. God's favour to we who don't deserve it. And that's true in every area of life. Is it not true that we're all too prone to think, to assume and to believe that what we are, what we've achieved, is down to us? Maybe you've got a good job. Maybe you're really hardworking, have done brilliantly in your studies. Maybe you're athletic. Maybe you're beautiful to look at. Maybe you've got fantastic dress sense. You've made a success of life in your own view, perhaps. Maybe you look at the place you came from and you think, I did that. Well done, me. Maybe you're really proud of your family and you think, look at my contribution. Maybe you even say, look at my genes have done. Well, Jubilee tells us and reminds us and reinforces that it's all of grace. It's all of grace, all of God's goodness to people who don't deserve it. If we'd been born in a different era, in a different place, how completely altered our lives that we attribute to our brilliance and success would have been. You know, once in Scotland, miners were slaves. Born a miner, you died a miner. No matter your ability and your hard work and your cleverness, you and your children were bound to a pit owned by a particular owner. Not till 1799 was an act passed that all miners in Scotland were to be freed from their servitude. We live now in a state with enormous benefits and privileges. Even British success in the Olympics is part of that. The rich countries do well. The privileged, the fortunate countries do well. You live in a time of great advantage, of great benefit. And let's keep telling ourselves it's all of God. It's all of grace. Our innate abilities, such as they are, are gifts of God. You're athletic, you're clever, you're musical, you're hardworking, you're good with children, you're good with people, you enjoy excellent health. Every good and perfect gift is from God, it says in James and chapter 1 and verse 17. And Jubilee reminds us it's all of God. The ancient people of Israel, they couldn't acquire new land because it was all, it was all God's land. 
They were just tenants. They had no right to ultimately sell it. So too, all you have, all I have, is of God's grace. Therefore, we have no right to be proud or to be smug about our achievements. The fact that we, perhaps, are paying our way and doing our bit. Consequently, we can't look down on those who are less fortunate than ourselves, who are disadvantaged, who are vulnerable, who are less successful, those who fall into addictions, those we might describe as lazy, because they are but for God's grace, go you and me. You don't know the backgrounds, the suffering, the difficulties, the health issues that some people suffer. These folk may lack all the benefits showered on you. And if you don't look down on people, you're surely much more prepared to help them, to assist them, to benefit them, to care for them. I don't know who sponsored that act of 1799 that freed the Scottish miners, but he looked past their undoubted poverty, their probable grubbiness, their doubtless bad habits of some, their damaged limbs and their damaged lungs, and he said, that's wrong, let us do justice. And if we accept that in all of our lives, all is of God's grace, then we're less likely to fall into the belief that in our salvation from sin, that there's any contribution from us. We are saved, freed from guilt, justified, made new, readied for heaven, destined for glory, looking forward to that, all because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all by him and through him, and we contribute nothing. And I'm sure, having heard Ivers preaching over the last few years, you know that, you believe that. But if in the rest of your life you're secretly saying, I did that, without recognizing that every good and perfect gift comes from God, then it's very easy to slip into the mindset that says salvation, well, maybe I'm doing my bit there as well. It's all of God. Jubilee also established principles of mercy. If people became poor, and in verse 25 it says, his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. God provided that the people should have access to the bounty of the earth, and that should not be alienated. And the poor were to be supported, not just the people in Israel, but travelers, visitors, and sojourners. And the reason for the kindness is rooted in the character of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt into the land of Canaan and to be your God. So the reason for the kindness to the poor lies in the character of God. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. Therefore, the principle of kindness to the poor, the impoverished, the vulnerable that remains. So then, in looking at how Jubilee might apply to us in the Christian era, there are two great principles there that point us to mercy. All we have is from God. God is gracious. And because of who God is, who God is, we should be merciful. What, what would that mean in practice? Well, I suppose it could mean political action like the Act of 1799 that freed the Scottish miners. 
seeking to relieve poverty and injustice here in Scotland and elsewhere. It could and should involve the church using its material, financial and people resources to that end. And if we as individuals recognise that all we have is from God's gracious hand and because of who and what he is, then we should be impelled to show kindness to the poor, to the vulnerable, to the disadvantaged, to the downtrodden, to the broken and to the hurting, and also to people who we in our hearts, maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but we in our hearts think the lazy and the stupid and the reckless and the feckless. And Jubilee today also, as well as these two great principles pointing us to mercy, also points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. I said these principles are all about grace, largely about grace. That points us to Jesus. Through it all is the idea of freedom, of liberation. Is that not what Jesus came to bring? Freedom from sin. When Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth in, in, in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 19, he read from Isaiah 61, and that's the time he said, This is fulfilled in your hearing. And this is what Isaiah said, because he was thinking of Jubilee. He said, He, and I mean, I know that was Jesus, has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And while Jubilee only came around every 50 years, every day, it's the day of the Lord's favour. Today is the day of grace. And Jubilee also points to Jesus in its stress on redemption and buying back of uh, a person in slavery and a redeemer paid the price to release him. That's what Jesus has done. He has paid the price that we can be bought back from sin. As the shorter catechism says at answer 20, God covenanted to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into any state of salvation by our Redeemer. So then, looking at uh, uh, the Jubilee concepts, in our era, it no longer applies in detail. It was for the state of Israel, and that state is gone. The ancient state of Israel is gone. But its stress on grace and God's character points us to mercy, and its overall themes of freedom and redemption point us to Jesus. I said we'd briefly touch on as well uh, Jubilee in the future. It began with the blowing of the ram's horn in the Day of Atonement. And about Christ's return, it says in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4 and verse 16, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the sound of the trumpet of God. And in that age of glory, all that Jubilee pointed towards in a kind of shadowy way will be made clear and fulfilled. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. There'll be no more poverty, no more sighing, no more tears, no more economic bondage, no more slavery. Rest, rest and restoration for the, for the earth, for the universe. The chains of, of sin will be removed. And the dysfunction and the corruption caused by sin in the environment and in people will disappear. It says in Hebrews 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Time of safety and of peace and of flourishing. 
Although in Hebrews it also says in 4 verse 7, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And in verse 2, For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That's a warning to us, because the ancient people of Israel, it seems, pretty much ignored what they were given in Leviticus 25 of the Jubilee. Terrible thing if we ignore the greater truths that have been presented to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in conclusion then, uh, Jubilee happened or was meant to happen every 50 years to relieve economic hardship, to um, free slaves, to restore all because of the character of God. As a detailed rule, it doesn't apply anymore, but for Christians today, it reminds us that all is of God's grace. It encourages us that we have no, encourages us in the view that we have no reason to look down on the disadvantage and every reason to work in mercy. And it points us to Jesus Christ, not just once every 50 years, but every day, every moment, there is redemption, the great Redeemer. I'll, I'll close by quoting what Robert Murray McChain of Dundee uh, said that is relevant to this. He once preached in a different text, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But what he said brings together the fulfillment of Jubilee principles in Christ. He said, if you'd be like Christ, you must be like him in giving. But he anticipated objections. And there are objections that are still made today. Objection one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection number two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? Objection number three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same. Yes, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, yet he gave of his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, the thankless and undeserving. Amen.